0: Welcome to the Addison Street Community Church podcast. Our mission is to be a community of believers proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through worship, discipleship, and service. Our prayer is that you are transformed by the word of God in the following message, and we trust you are using this podcast as a supplement to your participation in a gospel church near you. Let's now hear what God has for us. Happy New Year, church. What are you looking forward to in 2023? Often our lives are marked by special dates. Maybe the date that you are looking forward to this year is a wedding date. Maybe you have a vacation that is on the calendar already. Tickets are bought. You're going. Maybe it's a graduation date. The day when you finish school and enter into the next phase of life. We often mark our lives by the beginning of something new. And today, I want us to be reminded, not of a new concept, but of a, of a day. A day that we've been singing about today already in our service. I want to, on this first day, this first Lord's Day of the year, I want to remind you that Jesus Christ could come back in 2023, and I want all of us to be prepared for his appearing. I think the second coming of Jesus Christ, the doctrine, the teaching, the celebration of it, has fallen on hard times. Why is it that we don't uh, often think about it? Um, We just sung a a song uh, called On That Day. It was written in 2022, this year, just months ago, but... um, you know, back in the day, and I can say this because I'm a part of the older generation of our church now, uh, they used to sing lots of songs about the second coming of Christ. And uh, with no fault to anyone, um, I want us to be aware. I want us to sing songs. I want us to write songs on the second coming of Jesus Christ. So this is a good thing to be reminded of on the first day of the year. Now you might, in your mind, think, yeah, I believe that. I believe that Jesus Christ is coming back. I believe that just as much as I believe He came as, at Christmas time. But you, if you tease that out, you probably are hard pressed to know what the, what does that look like. When you think about heaven, what does that mean? This past week, we were with some friends, um, one of whom unfortunately lost her father early. Um, to COVID, a perfectly healthy man who died a year ago uh, from COVID. As they were processing that, they were processing, he's in heaven. He's happier, he's better, um, he's healed. But they, they, they said, they confessed that it doesn't seem real. Does heaven seem real to you? Is heaven something that you dwell on? Well, if it isn't, I am here to get you in that mind space today. We're going to be looking at the book of 1 John. If you have a Bible, please turn to the book of 1 John chapter 2. We're going to look at the end of chapter 2 going into chapter 3. All we're looking at is five verses of Holy Scripture today. 1 John chapter 2 verses 28 into chapter 3 verse 3. God's word says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies Himself as He is pure. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful. The turning of another page in the calendar, another year around the sun. And yet, Lord, we pray to the one who uh, is above and outside of time, who isn't marked by Januaries and Decembers. The Lord, you who know time and created time, we ask, Lord, that you would, through this talk and this time in your word, that you would burn eternity into our hearts, that, that the second coming of Jesus Christ would be more tangible and palpable and real to this church, to each of us. Oh, Lord, do that in this time. Exalt your son before us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Since we're not doing a sermon series in the book of 1 John, I'm just going to give you a little crash course introduction to make sense of these five verses. Because I do not want to be the preacher who just takes a passage of Scripture and uses it for my own designs. So first, the theme of the book of of 1 John, it feels like, when you read the book of 1 John, it feels like the ramblings of a wise old man. But in so doing, John, who is probably around 80, 90 years old, this is the beloved disciple of Jesus, that wrote the Gospel of John. John, in these five chapters, is presenting the possibility of a consistently Christian life, or, if I can put it this way, Christian assurance. He answers the question of, how can you tell who's a Christian and who's not? More importantly, he answers for us, how do you have ongoing certainty that you are a Christian? If the gospel of John was written for the purpose that you may believe, the letter of 1 John is written so that you may know. He's telling you that you can know that you are a Christian and that you generally can tell who's a Christian or not. In chapter 2, verse 18, John drops this line. He says, children, it is the last hour. Remember, he's an old guy, and he can address his his readers as children. It is the last hour. John writes with a perspective of time that we should all embrace. Basically, John is saying, we are in the 11th hour. The clock has struck 11, and it's moving towards 12. It's important for us to realize that we are today, right now, in the last hour, okay? Okay? And for John, and it should be for us, it's less important about when the clock strikes 12 than it is what's happening now. We can't tell. Jesus himself said, "There is God, I'm going to come back, but I don't even know the time or the date. Jesus is coming back, but we don't know when. We can be certain that he is coming back. And this, these few verses... Help us get ready for that unknown date and that unknown yet to be seen reality. John told his readers, We're in the last days. Now, friends, if John, who wrote this in about 80 AD, 80 said, We're in the last days, okay, we're in the last days today just as much. It's not just because of the progress and the evolution of technologies that we're more in the last days than when John was all oh, those poor primitive ancients you know, who didn't have all the conveniences that we do. No, John is saying, like, God who transcends time, the way he looks at time is the way I want you to look at time. And the fact of the matter is, is for 2,000 years since the canon of Scripture was closed, since the Bible was finished being written, we have been in that last day. It is that last day from the time that Jesus ascended into heaven to the time that he returns. It is the last hour or the last days. So John's theme is Christian assurance. John's timing is is about the last day, how to live in and for the last days. And then he says, there's some tests. How do you know you're a Christian? John wants us to keep in mind that there are certain cycles or or, or series of tests that you can tell and have certainty of your place in Christ. There are a series of moral, uh, doctrinal, and social tests for those who are professing Christians to apply to themselves for their own assurance So I know that not everyone here is always fully assured of Jesus. And your faith, does it not, your faith wavers. Sometimes it feels really strong. Sometimes it feels real weak. And maybe at those points when you're weak, you think, man, how, how do I know? Am I really a Christian? This book is for you and this talk is for you. So I'm just gonna run you through these examples of these tests. First, there's the moral test. Basically, this answers the question, do you obey? Look at chapter two, verses three to six, just as an example. So you're in the end of John two, look at the beginning of John chapter two, and I'll point this out. He says, and by this we know that we have come to know him, that's Jesus, if we keep his commandments. Here's the test. Whoever says, I know him, what does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him and Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That is the moral test. Do you obey God's word? Then there's a social test. That you see throughout. And we can see an example of this just a couple verses ahead in verses 9 through 11. When John says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In other words, how do you know you're a Christian? Are you marked by love or more by hatred, contempt? This is the social test. Do you love? Then the final kind of test that you see throughout 1 John is doctrinal. In other words, this answers the question, do you believe? And look at verses 21 to 25 as we come to our main text. John says, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will be, you will abide in the Son and in the Father, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. That's a doctrinal test. Do you believe? What is your relationship to the light? So how do you know you're a Christian? The moral test, the social test, the doctrinal test. Now that sets us up for our passage, which I think teaches us that God's children exercise themselves in holiness for Christ's return. Hear that again. God's children exercise themselves Selves in holiness for Christ's return. And today, I'd like to present to you four factors that will keep you fit for the second coming of Jesus. Fitness, ah, huh? something we think about at the beginning of the year, right? Tis the season when the revenue spikes for gyms and health clubs, right? Everyone signs up, New Year's resolution, we're going to the gym, we're gonna get trim, and all of that. So the first, the first factor in verse 28 is an incentive to exercise, God's children exercise themselves. Let's read verse 28 again. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. That abiding idea was already broached in verse 24 and and it goes throughout most of the rest of the book here. Uh, It's an active exercise. It is the incentive to abide. Why abide? Because Christ is coming again. In other words, what John is saying in a kind of a double-meaning kind of way is that there's going to be a return on all your abiding. On all your perseverance and staying in Christ, there is going to be a return, literally. You abide in Christ, he comes back. He doesn't come back because you are abiding. You abide, you persevere, you exercise yourself and prepare Because Jesus Christ is coming back. Now, there are different kinds of words for the the coming of Jesus or the appearing of Jesus. I'm not going to get into those necessarily. But but simply, the word coming points to the personal presence of a king who is now absent in the flesh. The king is coming. He's not here, he's not seen, but he is coming. He will eventually appear, and he will be now visible to you. That's incentive to clean up, to get ready, right? I mean, if if somebody really important you knew was going to be coming through your neighborhood and and visiting, I mean, we Americans probably wouldn't do this, but in almost any other country, you would start preparing to invite a person into your house. But if this important person were to come into your neighborhood and have a conversation with you, and you knew this, you would prepare. So today, as we think about the second advent of Jesus, we celebrated Advent and Christmas, the second advent of Jesus Christ was part of the early church's early, uh, Christian belief. This was not a kind of a Johnny come lately sort of uh, a doctrine or teaching. This is, it wasn't a, you know, Jesus is like, well, I got to do round two, so I'll come back another time, and, you know. Not only did Jesus talk about this often, the apostles Paul, Peter, and here John, and other writers of the New Testament made much of it. Now, somebody did the count. I didn't count. But somebody says, like, every 25 verses, on average, in the New Testament, broaches the subject of the return of Jesus Christ. So starting with the angels at the ascension of Jesus Christ as the apostles are watching Jesus go up in a cloud and they're wondering like uh what's happening he just rose from the dead and we've been with him 40 days and the angels tell them don't worry as you have seen him go he is going to return So since that time, when the angels told of the second coming of Christ to the apostles, the apostles have been preaching the gospel of the second coming ever since, which means that churches throughout the centuries and the millennia have needed to be preaching this as well, which is why we are preaching it. We are not exempt. Just because we may not know, just because it has fallen on hard times, doesn't mean that we should not talk about it. Now, friends, I understand that heaven and the doctrine of the Lord's second coming seems so far out there. You're saying people have died, been born and died, and Christ hasn't come back. And some of us long for Jesus to come back in our time. And I ask do you act and live with the very possibility that Jesus could come back before the end of this sermon, before the end of this day? That's an important question. To consider, But here's how some people treat the second coming of Christ. They treat the the second coming of Christ like an ejection button in a plane, hoping that that button gets pressed soon because I want out of this messy world. Or you think it's like an escape hatch that I can just, I'll be done with this life and done with this body. It's all about the spirit anyway. No, no, it's not. Jesus resurrected in a real body and he ascended to heaven in a real body so there's a, there's a future for your body that the second coming of Jesus promises. So the incentive to keep going, to keep abiding in Christ, is because he is coming back. So there's two possible reactions that you can have according to our text in verse 28. One reaction is confidence. Why abide in Christ? So that when me, he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink and shame at his coming. What is confidence? Confidence is used all over the New Testament, but it's the idea in a couple different places. It's the idea of having boldness in speech and openness in prayer. It's just some examples. Being a Christian, being in Christ, means that you can actually be bold and confident in the way you pray, not timid. Like, well, I guess I'll just chalk up a few things and ask God. Maybe ask for a little bit and you know see see what happens. Don't wanna, you know, don't wanna really, you know, intrude on God and as if God was, you know, private and to be bothered. Confidence is a posture carried because of certain because of certainties. You can be confident. This is a godly kind of confidence. It is a posture, it's a stealing of your spine, if you will that you can go before God in prayer, you can live your life now in such a way that is certain that something better is coming. This is why John writes. He writes for our joy, as he says at the beginning of the book. I want you to prepare, I want you to abide so that you can have confidence at Christ appearing, which means that you can actually, as days go by and months turn over and years turn over, you can grow in confidence of Jesus' second return. John writes to all believers that every year that turns, that changes over, should grow and boost your confidence so that you may not shrink in shame. Now, what's this idea of shame? Shame, as John uses it, is the utter disgrace of a sinner or of God's enemy when they're exposed. Jesus compared this concept when he gave one of his parables. One of Jesus' parables was the parable of a king who threw a wedding feast for his son in Matthew 22. And he said, go and tell people, invite them to come. And apparently when you come to these ancient Near Eastern weddings, you wear a certain kind of appropriate garment. Well, as the king is going into the banquet hall to see all the different guests that have come, he notices that there's one person there who is not dressed like the rest. And of course, that person knows. How did that person sneak in? And Jesus says in there, that when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw that there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. That is the kind of shame that not having an answer knowing that I don't belong. And John is writing to you so that you are not caught off guard, that you are prepared, that you won't be shamed at the second coming of Jesus Christ. John is writing for your joy and he's writing to help you avoid God's end times displeasure. Isn't this not God's gonna come back and everyone's gonna go to heaven? The Bible does not teach that, friends. There will be a parting of the just and the unjust at the coming of Christ. And John is helping you to prepare and anticipate that with joy and not shrink at shame at his coming. This is not merely like, well, what would Jesus do? Like, if Jesus found you doing what you're doing, would you you be embarrassed? Certainly there's some truth to that. Whatever you're doing, would Jesus approve of? This is not just that, what you're doing in the moment of Christ coming back. But you grow in confidence in his return. The second factor that we must exercise ourselves in, in verse 29, is the birth of righteousness. The birth of righteousness. And he says here if you know that he, that is Christ, is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. One scholar by the name of Bob Yarbrough says abide means that they are upholding the heritage. So to be righteous is not to, like, make up your own righteousness, but it's to carry on the family righteousness, the kind of righteousness that was birthed from another. And he talks here about a knowledge. If you know, man, that word is all over 1 John. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure. This is the knowledge of the one who is the source of righteousness. This knowledge is talking about the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And because Jesus is pure and righteous, and because he's coming again, you should rigorously practice his presence now. You wanna get ready for the day that you will see Jesus Christ face to face? Practice living like it now. You may say, yes, I know I'm a Christian, You may even say, I am justified. And you might understand the great and glorious doctrines of grace and the salvation that we have, that we have a righteousness that is not our own. We don't get to heaven with 1% of our righteousness and 99% his. No, it is all his. And he says here, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. In other words, the birth of Jesus Christ as a human God-man, God-becoming man, is the birth of righteousness, true righteousness on the earth. And in his leaving and his ascension back into heaven, he makes possible righteousness for us. If you know that he is righteousness, if you know that Jesus is the source of all righteousness, you can be sure that everyone who continues upholding the family heritage is born of him. You can be sure that you're Christ's child. John Stott puts it this way. The late preacher in London said this, that the proof of being a Christian isn't mere orthodoxy, but righteous conduct as well. In other words, it's not about heaping up knowledge. It's about your knowledge matching your conduct. Does your knowledge of God and Jesus and the Bible and God being light, does that actually impact the way that you live. It's not enough just to have right belief. And the way that you exercise right belief is in in the one who is righteous. You have no righteousness. You have no ability to act Christianly, to be good outside of Jesus Christ. You need to be born of God. This kind of reminds you of that conversation Jesus had in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus when he was just befuddled by the fact that Jesus says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. This is the same idea here. Unless you are born of the righteousness of Christ, there's no chance that you will, see, you will have a future in heaven. The third factor that fits us for heaven, then, is in verse 1 of chapter 3. And this is what I would call an otherworldly love. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. That's what it says. What John is telling, he says it basically like this: He says, Take it on the word of an old man. Being God's child, Isn't just a warm, fuzzy title for all human beings. It's an actuality, it's a real relationship. John is often noted as the apostle of love. John is the one writer in the New Testament who writes more about love than any other writer in the New Testament. And this book in particular, five chapters has more mentions of love, whether it's a verb or it's a noun, than even his gospel or any of the other books. So this is an important part of understanding what it means of being God's child and and abiding in him and preparing for the second coming of Christ. You know what? To be loved by God has everything to do with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Take it from the apostle who laid and rested in his very bosom at that last supper, This is interesting language. See what kind of love. You know, this, you can't necessarily see everything that's uh, in, in English here, but the idea here, this phrase, see what kind of, this is a phrase that really actually literally just comes off as what world did this come from? That's what that says. Where in the world did this come from? Mary, the earthly mother of Jesus, responds to Gabriel, responds to the angel's greeting. Greetings, you woman of favor. And she. Luke records and says, she pondered in her heart, she says, what kind of greeting this was. This was an otherworldly type of greeting. Or when the disciples were on a boat with Jesus and the storm was raging and Jesus was asleep and they got scared, Jesus just woke up and said, peace, and he calmed the storm. And you know what the disciples responded? They says, what kind of man is this? That this is the same idea. Where on earth did this come from? It is completely otherworldly. You may not realize it. Today we sung a song that speaks about this. And no doubt, it's been played hundreds of times on the radio throughout the Christmas season. And non-Christians and great performers have sung this phrase and repeated it. And wonders of his love. And wonders of his love. And wonders, wonders of his love. And John is bringing us to this childlike moment in the book and saying, the wonder of being a child of God. This, There is nothing like this. It's one thing, say, if you got a, a subscription or a, a, a Gordon Ramsay cookbook for Christmas. That's one thing. But what if you got, wrapped in an envelope, an invitation to spend a day in a kitchen with Gordon Ramsay? Much different. Oh, it's great to see the great feats of Leo Messi on the soccer pitch. Maybe see some of his videos and try attempting some of those things. But it's another thing to get in your stocking a day with Messi practicing soccer. Or perhaps you like to write and you're trying your, ha- your hand hard at writing well. And maybe you were gifted a course on YouTube to have a writing class. But it's another thing say being invited to spend a month with malcolm gladwell a great writer in america and study writing with him people whose talents seem like otherworldly and john here is illustrating that to be loved by god the heavenly father is unlike any love in this world think about it friends your mom your dad your husband your wife your grandma your grandpa your brother your sister Their love, let's say it was a good kind of love, is nothing like the love of God the Father. To be loved by God the Father is easily exchanged and eclipses all human loves. In fact, to be loved by God is the most comforting thing when you know that all the loves in this world that have disappointed you and maybe even shattered you and broken you and disappointed you, and left you listless and underwhelmed, you can still be held by the fact that there is a real father person in heaven that loves you. You ever see these videos on social media? They get, you, they get me every time. It's it's these, it shows this, this father or this mother walking down the hall into a classroom in a school. They're military parent. Their kids don't know. Kids are carrying on with life. And all of a sudden, dad walks into the room and little daughter doesn't know what's going on until somebody points. And as soon as she sees dad, what does she do? She runs up into his arms. Though that is a small picture of of the reality of what it means to be a daughter of God, to be a son of God, now, I can't do this justice, friends. I can't, I can't tell you how good this love is except through me experiencing it and telling you what the Bible says about it. But I'll tell you this, what John says in the last part of verse one, he says, now, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. He's given you a little hint here for why other people in the world don't get you as a Christian, The actuality, the realness, if you can put it that way, of your relationship to God is something that the world does not get. In other words, people who are begotten of God the Father abide in his teachings and abide in a love that is out of this world. He who first loved us cannot be loved or understood by the people of this world or at least by their very standards of love. So much so that it's really a misunderstanding. Here, John is saying, be prepared. To, to be loved by the Father is worth the misunderstanding of your family and friends, your coworkers, your neighbors who don't get you, who don't understand why you could be so excited about a God in a, that seems distant, And you can't see in a book that seems so old. The world does not get it. John is not the only one that says it. The Apostle Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The natural person does not receive, understand the things of the Spirit of God. And be comforted that one of the factors that prepares you to be fit and ready for heaven is the fact that there is a love that you experience here that is up there, that is otherworldly, that someday you will go to meet, and it will all make sense. That's why I love, oh, I don't know, if I would say I love, but every time a saint passes away and we do a funeral, one of the first things in my mind when I think of a Christian who dies is I say to myself, now they know. They know more than any preacher knows. They've seen Christ. They know. The final factor that John presents us to get us ready for Jesus' as a return is found in verses two to three. There's a program for purity. God's word says, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Friends, being God's children is a fact now. John says, okay, if you didn't get like behold like how great this otherworldly love of God the Father is, he is saying you are God's child now and that means something, that matters. To be the child, to be the son or daughter of God matters more than being the child of your parents and the descendant of your grandparents. But just because you're God's children now doesn't reveal everything about the future. And John says it, like, basically saying, like, I, I've been shown a lot of things, but I haven't been shown everything. And John, the apostle, the, the inspired writer of Scripture, is saying here, um, I'm in the dark just as much as you all are about what the future exactly looks like. But he says, all I know, one thing I do know, is that when he appears, we're going to be like him. The program for purity promises likeness to Christ. So, okay, not only is Jesus going to come back, but the one thing you can bank on is that you're going to look like Jesus. No, 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 that doesn't mean that you're going to identically look like whatever your image of Jesus is, that there's all these these same-looking replicas in in heaven. No, I I think there's a sense in which you will maintain your created identity in, in heaven, recreated, glorified. But this kind of change and this kind of transformation is something that will change you from within and radiate from you. You will not get in heaven and be in heaven, not radiating like Jesus. And this is something we hope for. Again, I can't tell you exactly what it looks like. We don't have it in Scripture, but you believe it. And this is something we hope for. That's why he says, everyone who has, who thus hopes in him. Friends, I say it many times from, from this pulpit, that the best thing about heaven is not <coughs> some streets of gold and you know get, meeting up with relatives or, or friends. Certainly those are nice things. Or being freed from the presence of sin, the best thing about heaven is Jesus. And I think Jesus understands, and John understands that for a pastor or a preacher to say that doesn't just hit you like, oh, yeah, let's party. It, it, when you hear that, you think, yeah, yeah, I believe that. But you're probably, if you're anything like me, you're probably thinking, all right, but that doesn't seem real. It doesn't seem as exciting. Like, yeah, the best thing about heaven is Jesus. Okay, good. But God is so understanding of you. He loves you so much. And he is giving you a program now. And he talks about the hope that is that you have. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Friends, what is hope? It's so hard to define. I don't have a great answer, but I'll, I'll, I'll say it this way. That hope is a spillover effect into the present of something that is yet to come. It's a spillover effect. It's not something in the past, something in the future. And it, it's so good. It, it's so good. It, it's it's kind of oozing into your day today. Uh, the best illustration I can think of, and it's not even my own, is think of a tax refund, It is that time of the year, right? I know. Why'd you bring that up, Pastor? Well, yes, taxes are coming due, but for for those who have a refund coming, even a nice fat one, you've submitted your taxes and you know that Uncle Sam owes you money. And that's a good feeling, because you're already starting to plan how you're gonna cash that refund in, how you're gonna how you're gonna use that, what bills you're gonna clean up, or what things you're gonna buy, or what down payments you're gonna make. That is a hope that you have. It hasn't come yet, but it's affecting you now. The promise of being like Jesus Christ. I hope that is something that, can I say it this way? I hope that's something that kind of messes with you. Not in a bad way, but that just gets down into you and just burrows in there and says, what is that going to be like? Is that I don't think that means we're going to be omniscient and omnipresent, that we're going to be able to be everywhere present in the fullness of his being like Jesus is. No, we don't, I don't think we're going to be having those kind of properties and qualities. But think of the purity of Jesus. When I think of my great lack of love, and I think of Jesus love, I think like, if I'm going to be like Jesus, I can't wait to be loving like him. I can't wait to be patient like him. The knowledge of Jesus Christ. Think of everything that Jesus is. His deity, his humanity, his first appearing, his death, his exaltation. This kind of of knowledge that the Bible gives us makes hope spring eternal for his next and final coming. It's a knowledge that transforms us now and on that day. So it's not that you just hold out hope for a day that's coming. Okay, Jesus didn't come back today. Well, maybe it'll be tomorrow. No, this gives you, this gives you hope and confidence now. This is a transforming knowledge. And to know that you, have been, that you are being transformed by the knowledge of the coming of Christ is worth it. But there's a part that you have to play, and that's how he closes out uh, the section. And it's it's a hope that purifies. It's a hope that makes you purify yourself. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies themselves as he is pure. John speaks of this program for purity as if it's the natural thing to do in response to the hope of Christ's second coming. John's saying, "It, it almost sounds like a command but it's not a command. He's saying the realities of who Jesus is now and his coming back, this this will do something to you now. This will make you purify yourself. So real quick, purification is a theme throughout the whole Bible. In the Old Testament, purification, especially as you see in the book of Leviticus and how it's teased out the rest of the Bible or the rest of the Old Testament, is is a process of ritual acceptability. You couldn't just come any old way with any old thing into the presence of God or sacrifice. Sometimes you got dirty. You would have to sequester yourself for a time. It is a process of being ritually acceptable. That's the Old Testament. In the New Testament, I would call it as one of eschatological eagerness or fitness. To purify yourself, this side of the cross, this side of Jesus fulfilling all the law for us and being perfectly righteous for us. This now means, this doesn't mean that, oh, I don't have to, I don't have to do like that in the Old Testament. That kind of legalism is dead with Jesus and you know the the doing away with the law. No. He still wants us to get ready and to make an earnest effort. Think of in John 11, there was the Passover feast. People would come up to Jerusalem. You know what they did? They would come a few days early. They said, why? To purify themselves. It was part of the process of celebrating Passover After the ascension of Christ, Acts chapter 21, the apostle Paul, who is now pushing into different parts of the world, he comes back to Jerusalem. He's going into the temple. And before he goes into the temple, you know what he does? Paul tips his hat to the Jewish law. He purifies himself. He takes time to prepare himself to enter into a holy place. Then James chapter 4 says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. So there's a program for purity. Now, if the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, as chapter one, verse seven says, you might be thinking this question. How can I add anything whiter or more pure to the blood of Jesus Christ cleansing me from all sin? How do I add to that? How can there be some kind of program for that? In other words, how can we purify something that Christ has already purified? Again, I think Dr. John Stott is helpful when he comments on this, that he distinguishes between Jesus's purification from the guilt and stain of sin. No one can take care of that but the blood of Christ. But our part, when the Bible says be holy as I am holy, or purify yourself, that means we have a role to play. Our part is to so purify ourselves as an act of war, in order to challenge and break sin's power over us. Now sin has no uh, long-term power over us. but Some of its power is still felt. And so we fight, we pray, we abstain, we fill things, we do things to push against the attraction of sin. Because sin is still somewhat resident in us. And it's out there. This is why we must purify our hearts. Because we all recognize that we are woefully double-minded and hypocritical at times. Sometimes you have the gusto of a new year, of a new job, of a new this or that. And it, 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 like, it gets you going then after a few months or something or You're like, what happened to that energy and that passion I had before? No, it's because we need to constantly be at war with sin. Christ's second coming means that we will be finally delivered from sin's presence. Now, by way of application, I just want to ask this question. What does it look like to purify yourself? Is it mere abstinence? Is it the old... uh, is it don't go with, you know, don't, don't uh, drink, smoke, and dance or go with those who do kind of thing? All the, like, externals, is it just abstinence from certain uh, vices? I think it is, in part. So if you want to know how to purify yourself, here's some ideas. Start with this, this mindset of putting off. This is a biblical mindset from the Apostle Paul. Start with the imperatives, the, the moral imperatives of the New Testament, or start with the Ten Commandments and address the heart like Jesus addressed the heart. In fact, Jesus went to the heart of the matter when in Mark 7, he says this, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, that is, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, Jesus said, all these things come from within and they defile a person. So you wanna know where you start in this program for purity? Start with the moral imperatives and start addressing your heart. Don't just try to scrub your image as a good Christian girl or an upstanding Christian man. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind through God's word. If the Bible tells us that we must prepare ourselves this way, that we must abide, that means we must abide in truth. That means that there's really no preparing yourself for the second coming of Jesus Christ without continual exposure to his word. You need to be in his word. You need to be reading his word and memorizing his word and meditating on his word. That is what people who are serious about the second coming of Jesus Christ, that's what they do. It is an exercise. It is a program for purity, but you must also put on certain things. So it's not just about, don't do these things, but it's also replacing them with, as Colossians says, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, forbearance, forgiveness, and love. So don't just turn over a new leaf and say, I'm not gonna smoke as much this year or drink this much this year or watch or binge this much this and that this year. Those are good things, but that's not all. What are you going to replace it with? If you cut out certain hours of watching something say, what are you going to replace it with? I appreciate how our sister led us in prayer. She mentioned the conversations that we have. You know one way that you can get ready for heaven? Talk about it with other believers. Share, which means you're going to share some of your struggles. Some of you are not going to feel like, I want to go to heaven. It's so mysterious. Or I want to really go to heaven because I'm, I'm so desperate and I'm in despair. I don't even feel like living another day of life. Well, somebody share, talks like that to you. We together can feel and, and go to heaven in a way in our conversation together. Conversations with the saints will prepare us for heaven. And I want to encourage us to talk, talk much About heaven, because I I believe the, the the tenor of the Bible's teaching is that we we ought to be so heavenly minded that we are of great earthly good. You've heard that phrase that oh she's so heavenly minded that she's of no earthly good, but that's that's foreign to Scripture. The most heavenly minded being, human, was Jesus Christ Himself, and He was obviously of the greatest earthly good, and He sent His Spirit to renew that kind of spirit and that kind of a longing. So so friends, let us go on to heaven. If we we are not taken there today or tomorrow or this year, we can go there in our thoughts and our words and our conversations. If you're not a Christian, I'm gonna put it to you this plainly, you are going to be left behind. There's coming a day when this whole thing, this world, is just gonna end. You're going to be left behind. You're going to be part of those who get put into, a, 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 into the judgment of the unjust. And I have to say this, you don't have an enduring hope. You hope for things that will only kind of patch a sinking ship. You need a whole different ship. You need to change all your hopes into the one ship, Jesus. And I, I beg you, that today, that you, that you say, I, I'm putting all my eggs in his basket today. I don't know what this looks like, but I want to hope in Jesus. I want a future. I want a future that's better than, than what this world offers. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would just massage, deep tissue massage this into our souls. Oh, that we would long for heaven. Lord, I pray that, that if, if anyone is here who does not have the assurance of, of an eternity in Christ, of a, of a now with Jesus and safety forever, that they wouldn't leave here today without that knowledge that hope lord bolster in this congregation a great longing for the day when we will see you face to face and may we as we eat of this table um eat in faith and in hope of that day in jesus name we pray amen thanks for listening to the addison street community church podcast we hope you were encouraged by god's word and for more info for joining us for a worship service for taking your next steps with us, please visit ASCCChicago.org.